from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a writer that's synonymous with gore. His stories are visceral and psychological and throbbing with existential dread. He's joining me today to talk about his new novel, Playground as well as his previous and upcoming work. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Aaron Beauregard. Aaron, welcome to the show. Hey, what's up? Thanks for having me on. Big fan. I saw some of the other authors that you've had on recently, so definitely an honor to be here. Thank you. Yeah, likewise. I had read All Smiles Until I Return in the Cuck a few months ago, and I'm very fortunate to get you on the show right as you've released your newest novel, Playground. And I blew through that in about three days maybe and the plot the prose the violence and the mayhem were exquisite so i'm glad i got you on the show to see what's going on in your dark mind oh thank you yeah no i appreciate you checking it out that book's been doing incredibly well for me kind of like the next follow-up that you're looking for when you're writing full-time so Hmm. uh, it's been an absolute blessing in the reception and thank you i mean you're a part of that as far as you know reading it so i really appreciate it Yeah. And so you said writing full time. So like that's your bread and butter these days. No day job. Yeah, I was able to start writing full time about I think about a year two now. Oh, okay, Um, awesome. Yeah. So I kind of took a big leave of faith out of the uh, job that I hated and was about ready to put a bullet in my head. (laughs) But um, it was scary. You know, I'm Mm -hmm. not a college educated guy. I went to high school and then I worked a lot of like odd grunt work and jobs like that until I landed in a bank. And I really kind of just screwed around there for about five years in a band, just drugged out, doing whatever. Mm. And then it was like, okay, I guess I've been here this long and things are not evolving. It's time to change. And so I sort of applied myself there and ended up staying there for like 12 years. But Towards the end, especially, it just turned into something that I was like, this has just become my life. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, you think when you get a promotion, sometimes it's going to be like you're saving grace and like, oh, the money's great. You know, I never imagined without any type of college education that I'd be making that kind of money. Mm -hmm. But the sacrifice wasn't worth it. And it was sort of like snuffing out 
the passions that I had that were like real. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So anybody who's thinking about doing something like that, I think now more than ever, a lot more people are pursuing their passions ever since the last few years or so, you know, so it's cool to see. Yeah. You strike me as one of those people that's intelligent and just, it's like they don't have the patience to do a college education, the traditional step-by-step. You're like, your mind's constantly working. You're like an autodidact. Everything is self-taught. I appreciate that, first of all. But I think part of that is just like, I had no clue what I wanted to do. There was nothing in college that I was like, oh yeah, you know what I mean? Like, this is what I need. And it's like, by the time I had started like really trying to write, you know, there were definitely things early in my career where college courses would have helped, but not like doing like an associate's degree or a bachelor degree, you know, it was more just like education that you could still get from a lot of different places, like free resources and stuff. So mm-hmm. college can be great for people that are really like set in their way, I think, and they know what they want in life. And, you know, they want to be that lawyer or doctor or accountant, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. I was just very like sort of aloof though. And like, I didn't know anything that would be applicable. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, well, Your newest book, The Playground, the premise involves two low-income families being preyed upon by evil rich people. And the way they're preyed upon is really extreme because obviously it's extreme horror. So I was curious, was that purely as a tactic for the audience to sympathize with the characters? Or were you attempting to inject elements of social satire into the story? Well, uh, a minor correction, too. It's like, It feels like two families because like the families are kind of larger, but it actually technically is like three families. It's just the way the third one's introduced is kind of, you almost forget that that's like a family really. But I would say that's, that's a good point. I've, I forget about uh, Donnie and his crazy mother. I forget about that because no spoilers, but yeah. Oh, that's okay. That's kind of like right at the beginning of the book. Anyway, I don't think that's a spoiler at all. So, but, uh, I would say as far as your question goes, no, I mean, like I just kind of grew up in impoverished inner city, kind of, you know, a lot of like blue collar or people that didn't quite have, have much, you know what I mean? And like, Mm -hmm. even some of the places like referenced in it, like Pawtucket, I grew up in Central Falls, which is like right next to Pawtucket. So it's kind of just, there was no satire. I think it was more just experience, you know, kind of putting what you know into it. Mm. Okay. The main villain, Geraldine, I'm curious to know the background behind her because she is as narcissistic as they come. I mean, she's obsessed with her own reflection in the mirror, just like the actual character Narcissus, which is where the name narcissism is derived from. So I was trying to remember, I didn't get a chance to flip through the book again before the interview, but I don't remember anything in her backstory, including personal suffering that she suffered, like any hardship that she had to go through. It seemed like even from being a young child, she was exhibiting these like psychopathic tendencies. Did her story include any kind of personal suffering she had to endure or she would just like pure fucking evil? I guess for that goes back to the nature versus nurture kind of argument. I have many books where the monster is created like scary bastard. The monster's created, you know, by the circumstances around him and whatnot. 
Son of the Slob, same thing, like Harold Harlow is created by circumstances around him. Not so much with Geraldine. It's like this was a woman that was born into a well-off family Mm. that just had these demons that came with her, I guess, Mm. you know? Like going back to like, not to give too much away, but there's a point where she's like in the closet watching her mother, mm-hmm. you know, and stuff like that. So it was kind of there as a kid, you know. Mm-hmm. Now, Greg, on the other hand, who is the father of the Matthews family, is a narcissist by proxy. He wants his kids to look good and make him money in the process. In the story, he's placed in a dire situation where his psychopathic nature really kind of comes through out into the open. Do you consider his character a caricature of a narcissist or a psychopath? Or do you think that if you plucked one of those crazy parents off of the uh, reality TV shows that showcase extreme competitions like uh, gymnastics and cheerleading, do you think they could get pushed to that same level? Well, It depends on the person, I guess, but Mm. I think anything's possible. But Mm. the character himself, like, I've seen that character so many times. And in my own personal life, I've seen that character. And um, it's like, I actually had somebody reach out to me after I released the book. And they were like, you know, my fucking dad was exactly like that. (laughs) Like, he was exactly like that. I'm so glad you wrote that character. You know Mm. what I mean? Yeah. And there's like little hints of it in Greg, too, that like, it's sort of cyclical, you know, like he talks about how his father never like really gave a shit about him because of his sports injury. Right. Yeah. So, and I love sports personally. Like I love particularly football. I used to play a lot of like Sandlot football and that type of stuff. And I played baseball when I was younger too, until I got hit in the face with a bat at a really young age and my tooth went through my lip and like ripped my face open. And I was kind of like, oh, I don't really want to play baseball anymore after that. <laughs> so I kind of went towards football. But yeah, I just think like youth sports and how parents perceive their children and their success, you know, like mm-hmm. it's kind of crazy sometimes. And that's kind of what that character Greg was about. Yeah, he's kind of an example of nature versus nurture and that. If you nurture somebody incorrectly, regardless of nature, like, have you read that book, Nightmare Fuel by Nina Nesseth? I have not. She talks about, I think it's taught in like lifespan developmental psychology that the ages of birth to seven is the concrete operational stage where you kind of take in the framework for basically the way you view yourself in the outside world and So like if you end up with a dad like Greg, then you're going to get that baked into your psyche and then you're going to spread that on to your progeny within that stage. And it's just going to keep going and going like a generational curse. But what prompted that question was like those people that I spoke about that are on the reality TV shows with the cheerleading and the, you know, I'm sure there's other sports like baseball or whatnot. They have a way to in civil society kind of exercise those demons. But if they didn't, would they be capable of going that far if they were put into some crazy situation like that? Yeah, dude, it's, it's, <laughs> it's quite the question, but yeah, I don't put anything past parents. I mean, parents are just people. And like you said, especially in those early years, that's another reason why they say so many people who end up pedophiles Mm. were sexually assaulted as children. You know what I mean? Like you said, it's like they get that trauma baked in 
And then it turns into these demons that come out in horrific ways. So yeah, it's pretty, pretty intense. I would be willing, you know, I don't know, but I would be willing to bet in the case of pedophiles that it's probably always, I mean, I guess that could be like a paraphilia that you were just born with, but anyway, we'll get off that, that, uh, (laughs) that strange train we're on, (laughs) but actually kind of still sticking with the topic somewhat, the children were mostly well-adjusted. The only ones that seemed to really have issues were the ones that didn't get approval from their parents. And even though CJ had Greg's crazy ass for a father, he still got a sort of acceptance from him because he was a star athlete. You know, he excelled. So for the most part, his dad was usually happy with him. Now, Bobby, on the other hand, wanted acceptance from his father, but didn't get it. And I'm sure at one point, Donnie wanted acceptance from his mother, but he was in a permanent state of almost shell shock. So was there some subtext there with regard to parental acceptance being necessary for healthy development? Or am I reading too much into that? It sounds like kind of in the same vein of what we've been talking about, that you've had experience with people contacting you. I mean, I don't think I like set out when I wrote the book to kind of like make that message come across. I'm glad it does though. Mm-hmm. But honestly, like I didn't sit down and think that way, but those were all just like characters that I kind of crafted and it made sense to me for them. You know, I had to sort of think about what type of dynamic would they have with the parent? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And there's so many people like for every person that experiences trauma at a young age and grows up to be a piece of shit there's a success story on the other side of that coin. Hmm. You know, I've come across many people. I consider myself to have gone through some difficult things when I was young, but I've come across so many people in life that have had traumatic experience and find a way to beat it, you know, mm-hmm. or find an outlet for it and almost use it. Like you said, maybe like the name of her book, Nightmare Fuel, you could use it as a fuel, you know? Yeah. And I always wonder what determines that. Is that like a nurture thing? Like, I think I've heard Joe Rogan talk about his father not being present. And, you know, he just kind of speaks about it like, yeah, it was, he, he just did what he did. You know, I'm not mad at him and just kind of rolls with the punches. But then you have people where it really sinks in deep. So, oh, yeah. 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 It just, I think it just depends on your will, you know, some people need extra support around them. And unfortunately there's some people, no matter how much support they have around them, it will never be enough. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the sad reality, but I've seen both sides of it, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I hear you. Well, one of the most disturbing parts of the book is how Greg is able to make one of his children behave like a psychopath. When I read the slide scene, and that's all I'm going to say about that, just the slide scene, I almost felt as bad for Bobby as I did for Sadie because Bobby had been driven to such horrific lengths out of desperation for his father's approval. So is the provocation of emotional responses that are confusing and conflicting like that one something you try to manufacture, or is that just one of those things that happens organically? Well, I wanted there to be something that people weren't expecting. You know what I mean? A very pivotal moment in the book, really, Mm. where the dynamic shifts hard in a certain direction, you know, keeping a riff in the group, you know what I mean? Mm. Uh, The group of children was important to me because there's so much tension and everything around them just from the environment. But you want to have tension 
within the group themselves mm-hmm. as well. It's hard to talk about it without spoiling stuff, but yeah, you know, yeah, don't don't spoil it. <laughs> there's outside. There's obviously outside forces, as you indicated, that are also creating and manipulating the tension mm-hmm. within them. You know, so it's, yeah. I hope that answers your question. I don't know. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. No, I was like, just. I was just thinking it's funny how you almost have this sense of security because it seems like all of the good dynamics and the evil dynamics were established at the beginning, but then there's this wacky shift and you're like, okay, now I'm all thrown off. Now I'm really uncomfortable. So it was a pretty solid tactic. I really liked it. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. So I think probably my favorite character was Rock because basically he's, in my opinion, a pretty solid anti-hero. He and Donnie represent that shell of survival instinct that people that have been abused withdraw into. And it's always satisfying when they're able to escape it. But in the story, Rock is complicit in a lot of abuse himself, even though he's not directly inflicting it. So I think the ending, which I won't spoil, is the perfect amount of redemption and justice. Did that ending come to you as you wrote, or was it like the careful deliberation of cutting him some slack, but at the same time, holding him accountable for his actions. Well, it's like, obviously he was involved with some horrific things, but you know, people change too. Mm -hmm. And you definitely want character arc is an important thing in, in all stories. And, um, you know, you shouldn't just have it with one character. Hopefully you have it with multiple characters, you know, Mm -hmm. like some of the parents that were in that room in the beginning, looked at them all in one way. And then at the end of it, they looked at them in a different way, despite, you know, what might've happened to their own children. Mm. So I really enjoyed writing that ending. I actually got emotional while writing it, which is really rare for me. So I was like, Oh shit. Like, hopefully it's not just me that feels this way about it. You know what I mean? Mm. But then luckily a lot of the feedback started coming in and countless people were telling me they cried at the end of the book, you know? So a lot of people were saying that, there's an extremely disgusting part <laughs> that they don't like. Uh-huh. Not that they don't like, but that it's like challenging at the beginning of the book. But uh-huh. then like to cry at the end of it was like this sort of pendulum swing of emotions, you know, like, mm-hmm. and as a writer, that's what you're looking for. You want people to feel, you want them to feel something, you know? Mm-hmm. So, Yeah. You know what I kind of compare it to almost is I'm assuming you've seen Forrest Gump. Yes. You remember when they're on the uh, shrimping boat and Forrest is talking about Lieutenant Dan and says, I think Lieutenant Dan finally found Jesus or whatever. And it's that part where he jumps off into the ocean and just starts like kind of backstroking. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just just that sense of like final serenity is kind of that same dynamic that I got. I was thinking about that comparing to your ending. Oh, that's awesome. Thanks, man. Well, I had Ruth Ann Jag on the show And she told me that you had had a problem with Amazon over the cover of Playground and that you had to change it. Is that correct? No, maybe we might have got mixed up. I mean, I could tell a story about difficulty with Amazon to sort of, you know, fill that void for that question. Uh, But actually, to talk about this topic for a second, I put out a book last year called Nightmare Nirvana that was sort of like, Something I put a lot of money into, mm-hmm. you know, I got oil painter Zach Dunn. I purchased the cover art from him 
And I worked maybe almost two, three years on getting the 69 illustrations that are inside it done with this gentleman in Serbia, Stefan, who's an amazing artist. But the thing is, is that early in the book, there's some pretty graphic, violent pictures. Mm-hmm. And even though the cover did not have that violence on it, for whatever reason, they decided to flag the book And really the only place you can get it now is if you go into my profile directly. Mm -hmm. So like anybody who's actually like searching for that, like if you type that into the search engine, it won't come up on Amazon. It's pretty much buried. And you'd have to change your Amazon filter specifically to books, Mm -hmm. which no one does that, or go directly to my profile. I mean, thankfully, the good thing is that since I launched my store, abhorror.com, I've been selling that pretty consistently there. So like my hardcore readers are able to check that out and they find it there and they can get a nice signed package of it. But yeah, it's just one of the things that sucks if you want to have a cover that be it a little bit violent or whatever, which is also why I've kind of, for certain things now, if I'm doing something that I want to be really crazy, really extreme, I'll just put it out myself through my own website, Mm -hmm. you know? But but the thing is, you're going to lose traction and algorithm and residuals. But, you know, if there's certain projects that require it, I'd rather just do it completely by myself and without Mm -hmm. Amazon, you know. And you said, which book was that? Uh, That was Nightmare Nirvana. Nightmare Nirvana. So if you were to go to your Amazon page, would it be listed there? It is listed there. It's like okay. pretty much the last book because no one can find it. But <laughs> because everybody's going to go through the search, that's yeah. how everybody pretty much operates when they're on Amazon. It's a search. So I still sell, you know, a few here and there, but mm-hmm. it's nothing like that book should have been. You mm-hmm. know, it should have really gotten a good push. And unfortunately, Amazon kind of took that from me. But I'm not spiteful. Amazon, I know. It's not a perfect company. There's a lot of people that do not like Amazon and it's understandable, but they've also given me a lot. So I do appreciate that much of it. You know, I don't want to sound ungrateful. Yeah. I wouldn't be writing for a living by myself without the help of Amazon and that platform. So, yeah. Well, I'm speaking from pure speculation, not being a writer myself, but it does seem like a really good exposure to a broad audience if you're a indie writer, small press writer, and so on. But the particular book, The Obituaries, which you collaborate with Chris Triana and Daniel Volpe, you only released that through your website, correct? That's correct, yes. Through, I guess it would be through all of our websites, you know, just to kind of clarify. We do have a plan to move forward with a single site solution for people in the future, which we are working on. That way it's not so divided and confusing. But yes, for that, we wanted to do a collaboration where we didn't have to worry about what we wrote or what we put on the cover or the pictures we put inside where we could just do whatever we want and not be shackled. And it's been wildly successful. You know, we put out three issues in the second half of uh, 2022. Mm -hmm. And it's received a great response. And, you know, I'm excited to see where it goes. Uh, We got some big surprises uh, for 2023 on that. Yeah. When I had Chris Trion on the show, he said you called it, was it Horror Without Borders? Oh, yeah. 
a horror without boundaries horror without um, boundaries okay yeah, yeah. Um, because you do it not only so you don't have to worry about the content but also the artwork inside as well yeah we can do whatever we want with mm-hmm. that you know and that's the great part of it you know if we want to have a naked person on the cover we can mm-hmm. you know not that every single thing we put out has a naked person on the cover but i'm saying like if you want to put something that's hardcore a little bit controversial that's what this is for so that we don't have to be confined and looking over our shoulders because we're doing all the distribution ourselves and the manufacturing essentially. So the ball's in our court completely with that. And it's a great feeling to take power back, you know? Yeah. Is that something you commonly have to contend with in your writing? Like you're just in some sort of stream of consciousness flow and then it kind of gets ratcheted down. Cause you're like, Oh, wait a minute. Is this going to get me dinged on Amazon or, you know, Fortunately, outside of that Nightmare Nirvana incident, I haven't had any stuff like that really happen. Mm-hmm. However, I don't really let it affect my writing. Okay. But now, if I have something that's happening like that, where I'm like, oh, okay, we're going to this place, then I might just make it a site exclusive for myself. You yeah. Know? Yeah, you've got the option. Um, but the thing is, Amazon, for the most part, at least, from what I've hit on, I haven't had any dings mm-hmm. except for that nightmare nirvana being you know put down but it's not to say they won't come it's always there in the back of your mind it's always like a stress point but that's why brand building is so important mm-hmm. and that's why having an alternate platform such as my website abhorror.com but also like platforms like a Substack is really important for that too where you can have a direct connection with a lot of your readers, you know, like you can have people subscribe to the Substack, and you'll always have that connection with them. Even if a social media platform bans you or, you know, or shits the bed, whatever it might be, you'll have that. That's why I think Substack's pretty important in that regard. Okay. And they're pretty liberal as far as like, not trying to censor content or anything like that. I mean, I would go as far to say that's pretty much their whole premise is that that's their selling point. Like, it really got popularized because members of the media, whether it be, you know, it's not a left or right thing. Yeah. I'm not politically. I'm just saying like you could be on either side of that aisle and work for news companies and they have certain agendas that they want you to push Mm -hmm. certain things to their viewers and those people on the side of the aisle. But there's journalists out there that don't want to play that game and they just want to be real reporters and reported as it is whether it aligns with their political beliefs or not. That's what Substack's for. So they open up their own news platforms there. They report their stories exclusively. And if you value that person as a reporter, you can subscribe to their reporting instead of getting all these manufactured news stories. Mm-hmm. You know, That's kind of what the origin was. But now it's being used by a lot of writers. And it could be used by anybody, really, if mm. you want to keep in touch with your fan base. And it's very intuitive, too. It's a good program to use. Yeah. A lot of podcasters involved with it, too, I think, right? Yeah, you can actually embed the RSS feed to your podcast right on there, too, if awesome. you want. You could do subscriptions, too, if you want. For what I'm doing, I'm not going to do subscriptions. It's just more mm. a communication device to keep me in tune with my audience. But the great thing is, you know, you post it and it's like essentially like a nice blog post, but then you have the option to email it out to all of your people Mm -hmm. on your mailing list. So 
Well, in your story, The Cuck, which is actually, I think, the first thing. No, I think the first book I read by you was All Smiles Until I Return. But the second, The Cuck, there's a malevolent spirit that kind of gloms onto people when they engage in some sort of apparent sexual activity. So does the cuck kind of represent like sex addiction or am I reading too much into that? <laughs> I thought like, I don't think so in my mind anyway, but I could see why somebody would say that, especially yeah. like towards the end mm -hmm. when, it's, when it's explained a little bit more. But um, no, honestly, like the origin of the cuck story was, it was based off a true story. Part of it, like okay. a couple of my friends in a <laughs> late night situation that was very bizarre. And, you know, they used to tell the story sometimes when we were out, you know, just fucking around and joking. And they'd be like, you know, they'd tell their story. And we'd all get a good laugh. It was a great story, you know. So I just sort of took that story and I put characters that had nothing to do with them. Mm -hmm. Because originally I was trying to get this filmed in the UK. That's why it's written in UK English. It was the first thing I wrote okay. like that. Okay. I was trying to get a short film adaptation of it done there. So I just essentially kind of evolved the creepiness of their real life story. And I was like, well, what if it was a little bit different, you know? And essentially the whole thing with the creepiness of the cock and all the elements of him, those are just random ideas that I sort of put together as I was developing the story. Mm -hmm. But yeah, kind of the basis for it is like a hilarious real life event. Um, yeah, that was going to be one of the questions I was going to ask you as far as the movie adaptation, because you mentioned on the about the author page that it was written specifically for the screen. So did you get any traction on that? And why in particular the UK did you attempt to get it done? There was a guy who reached out to me from the UK. That, oh, okay. uh, he just said, you know, I've been reading all your books lately and I really, really want to make a film out of something that you wrote. And he had done a lot of like music videos over there, uh, clothing commercials, things like that. And he was sort of slowly creeping into film stuff. He had done a couple of short films and everything looked good, but then COVID stuff started happening and like economy stuff started happening. And he had to kind of focus more on his, uh, you know, sort of pay the bills obligations, I guess. Yeah. So I'll, I'll say it instead of a passion project. So <laughs> it's still it's still kind of up in the air. You know what I mean? But mm -hmm. we'll see. I definitely enjoyed talking it out and working on it with him. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, that's movie stuff for you. I've signed other film options as well. Mm -hmm. But that's the thing you got to go into movie stuff with. You got to go into it with this is probably not going to happen. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So that's just kind of the nature of it. And you'll be lucky if it does, you know. Yeah, I uh, interviewed a screenwriter and a writer-director, and they all just have horror stories about their movies. You know, it gets financed, and the financing falls through. And it gets, like, right up to the line where they're about to actually... I mean, they've got the actors, they've got the everything scouted out, and then just, like, the last possible minute it falls through. <laughs> it seems like it can be really demoralizing. Oh, totally, yeah. <laughs> um but I've been growing more local connections on my end. And I can say that there's going to be something film related oh, okay. under my brand in, I would say, the next year or two. Something's going to happen, whether I have to force my hand myself, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Which might be what happens. But 
either way, you know, that's why it's good to network mm-hmm. and, uh, and work with different people, you know? So, yeah. Well, the cuck also seemed to be left open to a possible sequel. Will there be another book kind of like, don't you have the slob and the son of the slob? Yeah, I did want to do another cuck book because as I said, it was really like written to be a short film. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a relatively lean novella uh, is what it ended up coming out to. Um, but there's definitely way more stuff that I want to do with that character. Yeah, He's a fun character to write. He's so creepy. Uh-huh. And it's like, that's the thing, like writing like genuinely creepy stuff. You know, a lot of my stuff is like, I wouldn't say that it's quite that creepy. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? I've definitely got gross stuff. I've got violent stuff. I've got good character arcs, I think, and storylines and things like that. Mm-hmm. A lot of it's very reality-based too, though. But mm-hmm. going into sort of the supernatural stuff a little bit and, you know, creeping people out was really fun with that. Yeah. Not only the cuck just being inherently very creepy, but there's also a really good psychological element to it. Yeah, I think it got into some readers' heads. Yeah. You know, they were like, you ruined my sex life. <laughs> I'll never look at porn again. (laughs) Well, I really enjoyed All Smiles Until I Return, and that's the one that I recommend anytime someone brings your name up. And believe it or not, you can listen to the episode yourself. I had Mike DeFrench on the show, and he actually bought the ebook as I was interviewing him. So, oh, cool. Got that for you. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks, Mike. So the aspect of the story that I like is that regardless of what someone did in this life, the afterlife was the same and was pretty much closer to hell than heaven. So was that just an element to give the story novelty or was the crux of it the fear that there may be no relief from this life in the next? Yeah, I was in a real dark place when I wrote that. (laughs) (laughs) uh, No surprise there. Well, you sublimated it into something useful. <laughs> yeah. So um, it's just, <laughs> I don't, honestly, that book, it's weird. Cause I was at a point where I was just like, man, if I got to do this all over again, like I used to think about reincarnation and be like, man, that'd be really cool. You know? Mm-hmm. And then you live another life after that. And then another one. Mm-hmm. And then I was just like, I don't know, man. I don't know if I want to come back. <laughs> as fucked up as it sounds, that's pretty much the premise of the book. Yeah. Like, there is a obviously like a love story and all these weird factors about life, really, and the programming behind it, I guess. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the crux of it is like when you're just sort of exhausted with life and you've just been beat down. You know, is that what you would want? Would you want to come back? But, you know, the thing is you could come back and you could win the lottery essentially. Right. And, um, come back and have a good life, but not everybody's life is perfect. Yeah. Even the people with good life have their tough spots, but Mm -hmm. yeah, it's a dark one. So, (laughs) well, Buddhists must be onto something because their idea of heaven Nirvana is the ceasing of the endless death and rebirth. So, (laughs) (laughs) They've got the right idea. They're like, yeah, what you want to aim for is not being reincarnated. (laughs) Right. Well, in all smiles until I return, the most abhorrent human condition is boredom. And people go to extreme lengths to avoid it. 
So was any of your motivation to write the extreme horror that you do the result of a sense of boredom with regular horror? Um, I wouldn't say I was bored with it, but I wanted to go to a place in my horror journey that was a little bit different than the stuff I had done before. Like I said, like my supernatural stuff, there's not a ton of it, but all smiles until I returned was a chance to kind of dive into that. And I really enjoyed it because, you know, you're unshackled quite a bit with that. Like if you're in reality, everything's got to make sense. Everything's got to be perfect. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It all needs to align. But if you're in a world that you're creating, you know what I mean? There's so many more possibilities. And yeah, if you're stuck in this place, uh, it's, it's hard for me to say everything I want to because I don't want to give too much away. But yeah. if you're stuck in a place just in a waiting line, essentially, you'd be pretty bored, I would imagine. <laughs> so yeah. I was like, it just sort of made sense. Like, you know, you'd be bored as shit down there. There's, mm -hmm. You know? So. Yeah, that's uh, one of the things. I forget which comedian it was, but uh, they were like, I do not want life to be eternal. You'll eventually get bored out of your fucking mind. You'll you'll yeah. see everything. <laughs> you'll do everything. You'll do it in a different dimension and then another different dimension. At some point, it's just going to level out. And you'll be like, God, when is this going to be over? <laughs> yeah, and I did a podcast back in the day about like children who remember past lives. And there's some really weird shit with that with people in the early years of their life that have these extremely vivid memories and they can tell you that they were a different person and like who their niece was when they were that person. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And like all these things that they really would have no way of knowing. So there's, there's a weird like real life supernatural element to past lives and things like that that I thought was fascinating. And, you know, you read the book. It kind of talks a little bit about that towards the end. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm obviously not going to give away any spoilers, but, uh, wow. The climax, <laughs> that's, uh, some ingenuity, some creative ingenuity. Oh, you mean like the very end of that or the, the end of the book where he, um, let's see, how can I put it? Where he does what he thinks, his love interest wants oh, would okay. want. And then yeah, as yeah. he's doing it, he's like, wait a minute, maybe she does. <laughs> that was just like, wow, this shit just got real. Isn't that fucked up though? When you can tell somebody like, Oh, this would be a good thing in this scenario. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. So, like, the, the character, the, uh, the story arcs you create, like, you know, you're like, trying to describe the pros and cons of the situation. Then you're like, well, wait a minute. Think about the situation. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I said, all around great book. I recommend it to everybody. Listeners at home, read all smiles until I return, read all of his books, but read all smiles until I return. But one book that I have not had a chance to read that really caught my eye because John Athan is a contributor is Beyond Reform. Can you tell me a little bit about that one? Yeah, absolutely. So that was um, the first thing that like one of my goals really was I want to work with other people. It was my first year of full-time writing. And um, so... I really liked John and I had read Lovesick by John Ethan and I really enjoyed that. And I had read uh, Stuck on You 
by Jasper Bark, and I really like that. And I reached out to them to see if they wanted to do this collaboration. It would be the first book that I release under AB Horror, you know, mm-hmm. which is my brand. I personally like not a huge fan of anthologies mm-hmm. or like doing them or whatever, because most of the time there's all these rigid rules. And if you're a writer, you're probably familiar with these. If you're not and you're just a reader, when you're doing these, a lot of times they'll be like, well, 3,000 to 5,000 words. And we want, you know, there can be this, this, and this in it, but none of this, this, and this. And, <laughs> um, and then there's a theme on top of all that. And it's like, do I really want to write your story or do I want to write my story? You know? Yeah. So I didn't want that to be the experience for Johnny and Jasper. So I just said, listen, the whole premise to the book, it's almost like a pissing contest of sorts, right? Like I'm going to do two stories and each of my stories is going to have at least one character that in my eye is beyond reform. They're just they're not salvageable. Mm-hmm. They're so deranged and disturbed. <laughs> and I was like, everything else is up to you. You know what I mean? Like, uh-huh. just give me one character that is beyond reform. And that leaves them totally unshackled. And an unshackling Jasper, I mean, he wrote a friggin' novella, essentially, at the end <laughs> of the book. Like, so he really, you know, I didn't want any word limits or anything like that. So I just let them go. And the result was we ended up winning the Splatterpunk Award for Best Collection on the book. Nice. Um, so that was a tremendous honor. And yeah, it was great working with them. They're both true pros, you know, um, and I consider them good friends. Well, I've been uh, kind of doing a lot of reading in the extreme genre and watching movies in extreme areas as well. And I'm a big fan of it you know, anybody that pushes the envelope. And I mentioned her before Nina Nesseth in her book, she talks about the enjoyment from fear and being disturbed by graphic content as the horror paradox and says that it's actually a benign form of masochism. So I was curious to know, do you think that when we read this type of literature or view this type of stuff that we're actually engaging in masochism (laughs) it's a good question Um, i don't uh, here's my thing is that i think what horror means to one person is completely different than what it means to another Mm -hmm. and this is the problem with people that want to stand up on a pedestal and tell you what to read because what i might like could be completely different than what you might like and how i might react to something or what i might take away from something can be completely different so I believe that majority of my readers, most of them are desensitized. So I don't consider it masochistic because it's like, you know what I mean? (laughs) Some of them are so desensitized (laughs) that it's like it has little effect. Then there's other people, but they still enjoy it. You know what I mean? Well, masochists enjoy it. They just enjoy it because they're just wired to enjoy the discomfort. (laughs) Yeah, but my point, I guess, is that. I don't think it makes them uncomfortable. Oh, okay. You know what I mean? Like, I I think it takes a lot to make these people flinch, you Mm -hmm. know? And I think some people, it does make them uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. right? So there's two types of readers. And then the people that it does make uncomfortable, a lot of those readers read it almost as like a therapeutic sort of thing. Like, man, the person in this book's life is such shit that when I look at my own, it's pretty good. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, and, and <laughs> yeah. seriously, like there's people that reach out to me and you wouldn't think so considering the content I write, but they're like, you know, your books have gotten me through some of the darkest days. I've had 
people that have said it's insane to me that say like this book saved my life reading this book, you know, mm -hmm. and to get those messages, you know, when you think you're just writing horror, it's pretty wild, but in writing horror, you put a lot of yourself into it, you know, and I think sometimes people pick up on that, you know, and so, yeah, the long winded answer is I think it means different things to different people, mm -hmm. um, you know, and didn't you, I'm pretty sure it was when you were on the generic podcast, didn't you mention something about somebody messaging you about a family member that was involved in active combat and had real bad PTSD and didn't really ever speak and read one of your books and just went, oh, shit. <laughs> they're yeah, like, yeah. Oh, they're like, oh, my God, he never says anything. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was, yeah, that was that was a funny one. <laughs> that's exactly what happened. <laughs> so, so that stuff, that's an honor, you know, like to evoke an emotional response in people. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you want it to go into the hands of people that are not going to be affected negatively by it, because mm -hmm. I'm sure there are some people that, may have triggers and things like that, but they're always welcome to reach out to me if they have any questions. I always answer questions if people have stuff on triggers, but I particularly don't list them. You know, I think it's like giving spoilers away. Yeah. So. Like trigger alert. These are all the best parts of the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you um, know. Well, which book are you the most proud of? Uh, I know that's like mm. asking a writer who their favorite child is, but <laughs> I think like, Maybe one of my more overlooked books is Modern Hysteria. Okay. Um, it's got a really, really good character arc in it. And it's very grounded. It could happen. It has happened in some ways. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think it's relevant too. You know, it's very relevant. And um, I don't know. I just think um, I would hope that more people end up reading it and that it gets like a second wind because... When I was done with it, I just felt really good about it, you know, and I still do. I love the book, but it's a weird thing. Like you can have extremely successful books that are not bad books, but you're like, well, this isn't my best work. You know what I mean? But it's up to the readers to choose it. So maybe it is my best work and I just don't know it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> so, but ultimately the readers choose, but I would say modern hysteria. I'm very proud of that book, you know, um, but there are others that are really really close to like playground is probably parallel with that, you know, because playground was such a massive undertaking as far as the amount of characters that were in it and just the sheer length of it. I had never written anything that was that long either. So mm. it just, it took a lot, you know? Yeah. Awesome book. Thank you. Well, do your friends and family read your work? And if so, who's your biggest fan? Uh, my mom reads all my stuff. She'll usually be like, when are you going to write a nice book? Um, <laughs> so she'll say that. I'll be like, never, you know. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, she reads it. You know, my wife has read a bunch of my stuff, not a ton of the more recent stuff. It's like I put out a lot. So it's like I don't ever expect anybody to read it. You know, mm -hmm. the people that do, that's really cool. You know, my good friend, Brian, he reads a lot of my stuff. He's pretty much collected everything. And sort of pushed me forward. I remember he read like the original version of the slob and, uh, you know, he was like, I really like this one a lot. I think it's the one I like the most. And people like that early on in your career when no one's reading anything, mm -hmm. it's pretty cool, you know, to have somebody like that, even if it is a friend, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. 
Well, how much time in any given week do you spend on writing? Um, I mean, I pretty much work full days as you would any other job. And then sometimes I work on weekends too. If it's not writing, it's writing related. You know, there's so much to the business side of this too. Yeah. Advertising, taxes, expense logging, going to the post office, mailing things, Mm -hmm. replenishing book supplies, stocking the store. There's just so much shit on that (laughs) side of it that, and I love all that stuff though. I've grown to like get into a routine, but sometimes I'll be like, damn, I like want to write, man. You know, like I, I just haven't had time to write, you know, like if you're doing a book release or filling orders, sometimes I don't get to write for a few days, but if I can, I'll just do like a full work day, you know? Is it a bit of a pain in the ass as far as taxes are concerned? Are you like a limited liability company as far as you as a writer or how does that work? Yeah, I um, established myself as an LLC to start out this year. And I have a tax guy now that I go and see. So that was really good. Kind of just having somebody there to fucking talk to and have some guidance. And Mm. I have a good plan in place now and I'm being much more diligent and sort of tracking expenses meticulously. And uh, yeah, it's not as big of a pain in the ass as you would think. Mm -hmm. It's sort of just like doing it, just do it. And it's not rocket science. It's annoying. Yeah. That you need to log a receipt every time you come back and you need to put your mileage. But once you condition yourself to do that, you're going to thrive more obviously because those write-offs are important when you're a one-man show, so to speak, you know? Mm. Some of the most famous authors were notorious drinkers. So as a writer, can you write off bar tabs? (laughs) (laughs) I honestly, I don't even drink that much anymore. In my younger years, man, I mean, pretty much my whole 20s were a blur. Mm -hmm. And then even in the late to mid 30s, I was kind of coming out of it, you know, Mm -hmm. but that whole era was just like drugs, alcohol, everything. Like it was crazy. But now I'm like, I don't know. I don't really, I'm glad I don't need to drink to write because Mm -hmm. (laughs) the way I handle a hangover as compared to how I handled it 10 years ago is completely (laughs) different. But yeah, I don't usually need it. I'm thankful for that and that I don't get like writer's block or anything like that. I've got literally what feels like an endless Rolodex of ideas in my phone, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's just a matter of sitting down and saying, just do it. Just write. Even if you don't like what you're writing at that moment, just write, you know? Mm -hmm. It's the best advice you can give anybody that wants to be a writer. Literally just write, even if you don't like it. Mm -hmm. Just push through it and you'll get there. Yeah, I think one of the funniest jokes I heard about being in your 40s is uh, this local comic was talking about how, you know, back when me and my wife were in our 30s, on the weekends when we'd have like a date night, we'd go out, we'd get drunk, and we'd come back home and have sex. (laughs) He's like, now that we're in our 40s, we either do one or the other. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. I'm like, yeah, I get that. (laughs) (laughs) well do you have a writing influence that you feel you relate to or identify with on a personal level not just from writing um identify with on a personal level eh, i guess probably not i don't know that i know enough about most writers 
I've always been a huge Clive Barker fan. I read a lot of his stuff early on. And I remember when I would be at the call centers in the bank and stuff, I would read a lot of his stuff there. Brad Easton Ellis, I read American Psycho in high school. That was a huge impact on me. Mm-hmm. I really like Raul Dahl too. Like he had some adult stories that were really awesome. They're just like really weird horror. Yeah, I'd say those are probably some of my bigger influences, but I mean, it goes back to like Alvin Swartz and Stephen Grimmel, Scary Stories, Goosebumps, all that stuff I considered to have been real influential on me. Uh, Fear Street, you know, like I was into all that stuff when I was young. Well, what is the life of Aaron Beauregard like outside of writing? Oh, man, lately writing's been my life. So that's usually um, the answer. (laughs) There is none. (laughs) Seriously, it's like it used to be a lot different, but I'm also like a little more moved out from the city area now, too. Mm -hmm. But um, it's not too far. But, you know, I hang out with my friends. Sometimes conventions. Occasionally I'll play video games. It's football season. I like to watch football. The Giants finally don't suck ass this year, so (laughs) I'll get to watch them lose a playoff game most likely, which would be great. (laughs) I like pro wrestling too, although I haven't gotten to watch much over the last four months or so. But I do like to go to wrestling events live. Those are fun. Bands and stuff like that. There's a decent scene in Providence, you know, mm-hmm. with stuff like that. But um, yeah, man, I don't know. I don't go out as much as I used to. I do like traveling. Me and the wife will travel, mm-hmm. sometimes go up to Vermont, New Hampshire. And those are great for, it's funny because I keep going back to writing. It's great writer's experience, like any kind of travel stuff. It always sparks ideas. Hiking too. I like to hike. I like to go out in nature, take our dog out. So that's really fun too. But yeah, that's probably it. Probably sounds kind of boring. You know? No, no. No, hiking is something I've never done but have wanted to do because I'm an introvert. So I like just kind of getting lost somewhere and, you know, kind of exploring, basically. I mean, I know you're probably following a trail unless you're doing some sort of extreme hiking, but something I've always wanted to try. It's fun, yeah. But you said, do you live in Providence or you live close to Providence? Yeah, I'm about 30 minutes out from Providence, so I'm kind of in the woods in Coventry. But yeah, Providence is close, and it's a good place, you know? There's a lot to do there. Well, being from Rhode Island, are you a fan of H.P. Lovecraft? Yeah, I think Lovecraft's awesome. Yeah, they do the Necronomicon down here every couple of years. I was a part of that this year. Some local horror writers. We have a a great group of writers that I kind of hang out with. Krista Carmen, she's a great writer. She kind of um, keeps the group together and stuff. And, you know, we do little readings and things like that. And we had done an anthology that was released by Weird House Press because Curtis Lawson's also in the group. We did uh, a little release party for it there at Necronomicon and, you know, sold some books and stuff and split a table. But yeah, Lovecraft is cool. And I bring that event up because it's, you know, it's a huge thing here. It's a big celebration of Lovecraft. So I think that he's awesome. He had some really awesome collections that had creepy ass imagery on them. Mm -hmm. And I had quite a few of those when I was younger too. So you're a writer of extreme horror, but are you also a fan of extreme movies? Yeah, definitely. 
Like High Tension, I consider that an extreme horror movie. I really like that a lot. The Red Room movies. I spent a good chunk of my life watching very obscure hardcore horror movies inside not the american version but the uh the french version of inside that's yeah a really really good extreme horror movie um that people don't talk about a lot yeah when she's sitting on that couch and i think she looks up at that sliding glass door multiple times but the one time she looks up and sees her standing there mm. that just scared the living shit out of me yeah i love that <laughs> But yeah, extreme, even like some of the like really hardcore stuff that's not great movies, essentially. Like if you ever watch like the August Underground Mortem and August Underground movies, you know, if you just found those in a VCR somewhere, you'd be like, oh, this is real. This is people getting murdered. Some of that stuff's super realistic. Mm -hmm. But yeah, Vinegar Syndrome's not too far from here. And they put out a lot of like vintage, like weird movies and some of them they even like put together themselves so i like to go there because there's not too many brick and mortar stores that carry yeah. so much horror in them you know that would be cool yeah that one's awesome if you yeah. ever get out here speaking of realistic i got a hold of the blu-ray dvd of the uncut uncensored extended a serbian film yeah have you I seen have that, that movie too. oh <laughs> I have that, Jeez. yeah, because that one was kind of hard to find, the actual, like, uncut one. Mm -hmm. It was a little tricky, but somebody in the Splatterpunk Horror Readers group shared it maybe last year, I think, and I was able to get one. And, yeah, that the extra footage is insane. <laughs> it's crazy. God damn. Yeah. yeah, so what do you think about that film? I mean, like, one of the films that I always pretty much ask everybody about is what do you think of the movie martyrs because i think that's like the perfect combination of extreme violence but like with a completely parallel psychological story progression like just syncs up perfectly but a serbian film i mean it's shot amazingly like i remember listening to a um podcast that they did with the writer director and he was talking about i think he was calling them red cameras like they were the first person to use these red cameras in serbia and one of the first in eastern europe so i mean this guy is like technically skilled just the cinematography everything's amazing it's just the subject matter is out of this world <laughs> yeah dude i love that stuff yeah. um i like mainstream stuff too you know like, I like everything when it comes to horror, like, as long as it is done well enough, I'm pretty easy to please, honestly. Like, I just, I can find the good in most stuff. Even some terrible things, you know, like, are pretty awesome and hilarious, you know. Your Troll 2s, The Room, stuff like that, you know. Hmm. Yeah, I've never seen The Room. <laughs> is that literally the oh, worst yeah. movie ever made? Definitely not. Not to me. I think it's amazing because people think it's the worst movie. It can't be. In my opinion, anyway, it's, it's, it just thrusts it the other way because it's so bad. You literally be crying laughing at certain parts. How, <laughs> now tell me, could that be the worst movie that would make people laugh so hard they cry? No, no. If you're laughing your ass off. Yeah. I've seen movies and just been like, God, this was a total waste of time. Uh -huh. Like, it's still selling out theaters today. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So it can't be. Yeah. <laughs> but, but those horrible movies are great. Yeah. You know? Those are fun. Well, I'll definitely have to check that out. Well, Aaron, it has been a pleasure talking with you. 
Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. And, um, you know, best of luck with the podcast and everything. Seems like it's going good, though. Thank you. I appreciate that. So as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers know about? Reiterate some things? Yeah, I would just say if you're interested in my work or if you want signed copies or merchandise, you can go to abhorror.com. It's just like my initials, Aaron Beauregard, abhorror.com. That has all my signed stuff, and there's exclusive things on there, too, that are too unsavory for Amazon. <laughs> and um, I'm also on Amazon. You know, if you have, like, Kindle and things like that and prefer ebooks, that's a great place to go. My latest release, Playground, has gotten some really good reviews so far, so I think I would recommend people check that out if they haven't. All right. Well, listeners at home, all links are in the description. And Aaron, thank you again for joining me. My pleasure. Take care. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you liked today's episode, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time. Well, ain't she just feeling the life when a rock star step in the building tonight? Everybody want to call me the villain. I ain't just as long as they willing to fight. Man, I ain't got nothing to prove. I'm chilling. I'm nice. That boy neck cold, just chilling in ice. And I ain't got to ask if you feeling the real. Because we already know that they do it for life. But I do it for life. Do it for love. You are now tuned into a beautiful drug. Hardly a cruise ship, usually tough. And the weak man usually bluff. It's not easy. Listen to your voice and free your mind. Wake up to yourself and see the signs. Destiny is peeking through the blinds. Under the sun, you can channel greatness. Summon the one lost in the moment. That's some of the fun. Like, there goes one bad son of a gun. Face first in the outer space with my grind. You can say what you want, cause I'm fine. You can say what you want, it's my time. I could not dare pretend that I'm blind. I see people on the bench in trenches. Blissfully me, that numbs all the senses. Hardly a cruise, this is usually tough. And the weak man usually bluff. It ain't easy. Listen to your voice and free your mind Wake up to yourself and see the signs Destiny is peeking through the blinds Reach